Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Nurse Mama Show, the home of happy parents and healthy teens on American Family Radio. Here's your host, Dr. Jessica Peck. Well, hey, friends, and welcome back to the Dr. Nurse Mama podcast. I have a great treat for you today. Today, you have double professors. I have, uh, as my guest, we have (laughs) Heather Thompson Day. I know it's going to be so funny. We're going to nerd out for you. Heather Thompson Day is an associate (laughs) professor of communication at Andrews University. She's passionate about supporting women. She runs an online community called I'm That Wife, which has over 200,000 followers, Her writing has been featured on outlets like Today. She's been interviewed by the BBC Radio Live and been featured in Forbes. And she wrote a book that I absolutely love. It's called I'll See You Tomorrow, Building Relational Resilience When You Want to Quit. And haven't we all been there? Heather, thanks so much for joining us today. We're so glad to have you. Jessica, it is absolutely my honor. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to start by talking about loneliness because that is something that we're seeing as professors and people. You're a communications professor and you're talking about the way people communicate. I'm looking at teen mental health and how they communicate to promote their mental health. And we know that loneliness is the big thing coming out of the pandemic. Even though we have a generation that's more digitally connected than any other generation, they're more relationally disconnected. So these are some of the stats that you give in your book, that loneliness, the health impacts are equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and it can shorten your life by 15 years. So Heather, we're going to unpack that. First of all, tell us your story. How I'm just giving that as a little teaser. Tell us your story and how you got to write this book, and then we're going to unpack that those crazy statistics. Yeah. So the book is something I've been wanting to write because I'm very passionate about relationships. I actually always tell people communication is the study of relationship building. The the quality of your communication is directly linked to the quality of your life. And so I was telling my husband, who co-authored the book with me, that I really wanted to write this book about all the research I had been reading and learning about relationships. And he looked at me and said, Heather, it's, it's not that easy. And when he said that, I realized I wanted him to write the book with me just because we have very different personalities and we also have very different life experiences. And so I think we do a good job together of explaining, A, why relationships are super important and impactful and you were created to be in relationship with other people, both This is true of both evolutionary biology and Christianity. And then my husband does a really good job of explaining why relationships are so painful and difficult and why so many of us absolutely... I've had a lot of people write me and say, I bought the book and it's on my nightstand because I'm scared to read it because Mm. the experiences that they've had are so painful Somebody telling them to keep going just sounds like too much at this moment. And so I'm really grateful that my husband wrote it with me because I think he does a really good job about making space for people's pain within the chapters of this book. 
I think he really did do that. And it's so great how you go back and forth. You know, you share stories and you do balance each other and you're very authentic in sharing your own pain that you've experienced. I mean, your husband shares his story of a broken relationship with his father, of losing his brother at a very young age to cancer. You talk about a painful breakup that you had. I mean, there's really nothing off of the table. And I want to go back to this loneliness concept because you and your husband, Seth, share your own experiences with loneliness. And how do you see that impacting our culture? And how how did you overcome that yourself? Mm. Well, I, I think it's interesting because I just think our culture right now does a really good job at prioritizing our jobs and a really good job at prioritizing education. And we do a really bad job at prioritizing our relationships, which actually is the only thing that makes all the rest of it worth living. So studies show that if you, when we look at our lives and we say, I have a really good life, what we are really saying is I have good, healthy relationships with other people. And when we look at our lives and we say, I have, you know, I can't do this thing anymore. I I need to go back to school. I need to make more money. Um, What we're really saying is I don't have anybody. And so, so when we're in positive, healthy relationships, your brain compartmentalize where life is wrong. It will say to you, you have a good life. You just need a better job. So keep working towards that. Or you have a good life. You just need to finish school. Or I have a good life. I just want to find a romantic partner. Your brain is able to compartmentalize where things might be missing, but it doesn't tell you you have a bad life. When we do not have healthy relationships with other people, our whole life just seems bad. And so I am just really passionate about people becoming intentional about the relationships that they're in and why we need to pursue them. I have, you know, I, I'm really lucky that a lot of my own personal relationships are friendships I've had, I mean, for, I mean, years and years and years, definitely over a decade. My my best friend, Scarlett, I've been best friends with since I was 15 years old. I'm 36 now. Um, my friend, Vimbo, that's one of my best friends I met at Christian summer camp when I would have been 19 years old. We are still accountability partners today. When they had you find an accountability partner at the Christian summer camp, that is still the person I um, confess my sins to to this day and ask for prayer from. So I have these really rich friendships, but what I discovered, and I talk about this in the book, was I moved to a new city for both of our jobs, for my job and my husband's job. And I found it really difficult to create new friendships. And in a lot of ways, I felt one of the worst types of loneliness is to be lonely while surrounded by people. So I had people that I was surrounded by, but I felt very alone. And I think part of the problem was I I didn't do a good job at reminding myself that people who you've known for 10 months aren't going to have the same context with you as people that you've known for 10 years. And how it takes, by the way, like just a random, like you said, we're going to nerd out, a random (laughs) research information. It takes, I think, like seven to eight times of spending time with someone before you even feel comfortable with them. And for adult friendships, think about how long it may take for you to have lunch with even a new friend seven to eight times. Most of us, if 
are lucky to make a monthly standing meeting with somebody, if not bi-monthly, right? So seven to eight times of, of having a meal with somebody, that's how long it takes for you to feel comfortable even being with them. So I wasn't giving myself, I think, enough grace to understand that the relationships that I was forming that were new in this new city, and I think lots of people in my generation can relate to moving to a new city, um, are not going to be the same in depth or breadth as the relationships I'd had since I was a child. And that didn't mean that those relationships were bad. I kept feeling like, oh, well, something's missing. Well, what was missing was the time that it takes to form lifelong relationships. So much goodness in what you said and so much wisdom to unpack there. Because I think, especially as you move into that season of parenting, life gets busy. You're at soccer games, you're at school performances, Mm. you're doing homework, you're at the store at nine o'clock the night before because you need to buy a poster board and some glue because you didn't know the project was due the next day. And it can be really hard to nurture those kinds of friendships in that stage of life. But something that you said when I heard you speak the first time, Uh, last year, actually, at a conference, you said that the greatest predictor of happiness in your relationships is not what you're doing. It's who you're with. And so sometimes I think in our circumstances, we try, if we feel unhappy, we try to change our circumstances or change what we're doing. Like, oh, maybe if I had Mm -hmm. this hobby, or maybe if I, you know, took up this activity, or if I was going on this vacation, that would be happier instead of investing those things into relationships. And then the hard part for me is that as a parent, those things are caught. They're not taught. And then we see our kids doing that same thing. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about, uh, about, friendship rules. And sometimes I think what our kids do especially and what we do is then we start to have like these unhealthy friendships because we're so desperate for companionship and we start to value the friendship more than the person. And you have in your book these friendship rules, like mm. guidelines for healthy friendships. What what do those look like, Heather? I'm sorry, I think I lost you on that last bit there. Can you repeat? Oh, sure, absolutely. So when we start to have, okay, sorry, let me start. When we feel lonely, we start to have lower standards for our friendship sometimes. And we start to value the friendship more than the person who is the friend. And I think that we can find ourselves in some unhealthy dynamics for those friendships and, you know, desperate to keep them because we think, oh, we have to keep this friendship. But in your book, you have friendship rules and some guidelines for healthy friendships. So what does that look like to pursue and cultivate a healthy friendship in your life? Yeah, I, that's interesting that you bring that up. I actually, I don't know if I mentioned that in the book as far as we lower our standards, but I, I think that is absolutely so true. I, I As you were saying that, I could think of times in my life um, where I've made some poor choices, uh, mainly because, yeah, I was just looking for any type of connection at all. Um, but so friendship rules is a theory in in what I teach, interpersonal communication that says that love, it's true of both romantic relationships and friendships, love and friendship are held together only because of the following of rules. And so for me, 
an activity I love having my students do is think through what are the rules of friendship for you? And we all have them. They're just typically subconscious. And you know that you have them because the second somebody breaks one, you now feel like they are a bad friend. But very rarely do we ever establish the rules that we are all playing by, right? Very rarely do we say to people, um, this is what friendship looks like for me. And so if you don't do this, I feel like you are being a poor friend to me. So an example of that might maybe, um, maybe somebody's a rule for somebody is if I send you a message, if I text you, I expect you to respond. And, and some people might hear me say that and think, well, of course, that should be a rule for everybody who's a friend. But it's I can think of many times that my best friend in the entire world, who I've been friends with since I was 15 years old and who I know for a fact loves me, I'll send her messages all day and she may not respond to them. <laughs> but she's laughing about them in her head or thinking about them. And then maybe she'll respond to me the next day, depending on what's going on. She has twins. Um depending on what's going on in her home. And if you spent time in her home with her kids screaming and stuff, you'd understand why she may forget to respond to me. <laughs> but somebody would have to articulate and vocalize that for them, that not seeing a message response might make them feel like you aren't a good friend to them. Whereas for her and I, I, I have the context of knowing her. That's not a big deal to me, if that makes sense. So I always challenge people to sit down and think of what are like five rules for you that signify this is a healthy relationship. What are your, and it's another way to just think of it is expectations. What are your expectations of a friendship? And really just bring those subconscious things to a conscious level. That is such great advice because I even think about that in my own friendships. I mean, I have four kids, so and I'm a working mom, so I work. And sometimes that has led to unequal expectations of friendship in my own life. Like I have friends who maybe have one kid who don't work and they have more time margin than I do. And their idea of friendship is, hey, we meet once or twice a week for lunch. And I'm thinking my expectation is, oh, I'm going grocery shopping and vacuuming on my lunch break. You know, because I've got to catch that up. But we haven't articulated that, you know, and then it leads to conflict. And all of a sudden, yes. we're having conflict, but we really don't know why. So what what can we do? Yes. We have sort of five rules, but what else can we do to manage our healthy expectations of friendships and model that to our kids? Oh my goodness, I love that you brought up modeling healthy relationship to your kids. Because I do sometimes, like I can think growing up, I didn't see my mom have friends. Her only friend, it seemed like really is was my dad. And so think through, I just think this is healthy for us to all do to think through, are we as adults even modeling what friendship looks like for our children. Because I, I have a feeling that a lot of us aren't. And we're saying, oh, well, I have my husband and that's all I need. I mean, for me, my, my husband may say that. <laughs> I feel like I'm his only <laughs> friend, really. Uh, but for me, I have I have so many friendships that mean the world to me. I, I remember years ago on um, I'm That Wife, which is the blog I do with Scarlett, um, writing a blog saying there's somebody that I need more than my husband and it's about her. Um, 
being just a great friend to me. But so I hope that I have been able to model for my children what healthy relationship looks like. So here's one of the things I would say. Um, I'm just thinking back to a conversation that I was having with Scarlett recently where I was disagreeing with her about something that she was that she was doing. I didn't agree with it. And she said to me, well, I don't feel like this is a safe space. And I said to her, I am not judging. I'm not passing judgment. And I'm not ever withdrawing affection. I'm just telling you I don't agree with this. That, like, literally the definition of psychological safety is that we don't withdraw judgment and um, or that we don't withdraw affection and that we don't make judgments over people's character, right? That is a psychologically safe environment. So how do we model, I think, for our kids what that looks like in an argument or a disagreement? Maybe it's with your spouse or a friend. What does it look like for you to have relationships with people you don't agree with? As we're talking about um, friendship, I just think it's a really l- low bar, to think that the only way I can exist in relationship with somebody is if they mirror me on all of my thoughts and dreams and feelings and beliefs. I I just can't, I can't fathom that. And so I think it's healthy for all of us as adults to model for our children what relationship looks like with people we don't agree with. How are we still showing love and respect for their humanity? And I also think it's important because it is very possible that our kids may grow up and have very different beliefs than us? And how do they know that they'll still be safe with you? How do they feel safe to even talk to you about the things that they feel are different from you? I think if they have seen you have relationships with people that you differ from in the past, they'll know that you're a safe space to differ with them without withdrawing affection. Oh, I love that because, yes, our kids are going to go through struggles. Looking at the adolescent brain development, it's normal for them to question things and for them to look and examine their beliefs before they adopt them as their own. And so to be invited into that struggle, you know, whether or not you're there or not doesn't mean, oh, they'll struggle or they don't struggle. Like, if we don't talk about it, they won't struggle. Or if we talk about it, they'll struggle. They're going to struggle regardless, but we have the privilege of of inserting yes. ourselves into that conversation. And you do share an anecdote in your book about disagreeing with a friend where you were talking about uh, something had happened where someone had offended you. And your friend said, you mm-hmm. can confront them. You have the right to do this. Or you can take this as one incident and realize it's not a pattern and you can let it go. And I think this plays right into what you're saying, Heather, is looking at those patterns of behavior in our friendships and evaluating whether they're healthy or not and looking at, you know, is this an isolated incidence or is this something that's happening over time? What are your thoughts on on patterns? Yeah, I just so I just want to first establish um you know, we have this word toxic that we say all the time. Everybody's toxic to us. And I'm not saying that there are not toxic people or toxic relationships, but I do think it's important that we have a baseline of what that language actually means. What does a healthy relationship look like? So um, this is a communication definition, but this is by uh, Joseph DeVito. Um, the definition of friendship is, and this is word for word, the definition of friendship is a relationship that is mutually productive and characterized by mutual positive regard. 
So when somebody says, how do I know if I'm in a healthy relationship or an unhealthy relationship? I say to my students all the time, is that relationship mutually productive and characterized by mutual positive regard? Do we both make each other better people because of this relationship? And when I'm around you, are you a respecter of my humanity? right? Like that's what actual friendship looks like. And I I think too, ask yourself this of yourself. Are you making somebody else a better person? Are you challenging people in a positive, healthy way? Or are you critical and judgmental and distant and make people feel smaller when they're around you? I mean, it's not just about, I hope people get this as they read, I'll see you tomorrow. I really, like we can't, in communication, we talk about this a lot. You can't control anyone else. All I can do is control myself. I cannot control who is going to choose to be a poor friend, right, to me. But I can decide how I respond in those situations. And I can decide what type of friend I am committed to being um, to the people that I come in contact with. So I'm not sure if that answers your question. But, oh, I do want to say this too. um, When it comes to, to toxic, it's about whether or not, so the way I think of it is, is there poison in the well every time you take a drink? So meaning every time I'm in relationship with you, this goes back to what you're saying about patterns. Every time I'm in relationship with you, I walk away and I feel sicker. Like I feel like I have a less positive view of myself or a less positive view of other people. Every time I drink from the well of this relationship, it's making me sick. There's unhealthiness in the water. Um, Or... Was there something bad in the water one time? Because there's a difference. I have, the, the only thing you will ever have in common with every single person around you is that neither of you are going to be perfect. And I don't have a single friend who couldn't have written a chapter about something that I did that fell short of their expectations. Does that mean that I'm a bad person or does that mean that I've made a mistake, right? So how do we offer people the same grace that all of us are pretty sure that we deserve. It's so true. And from my perspective as a nurse practitioner, looking at healthy relationships, the the fact is that healthy relationships are not perfect. And relationships that are trying to be perfect are not healthy. You will encounter hiccups. Mm. And so thinking about even our bodies, if I say, I'm a generally healthy person, it doesn't mean that I don't get a cold every now and then, that I don't get, you know, a a rash or, you know, something happens to my body, but it doesn't mean that I'm not generally healthy. And so sometimes I think we characterize, we we generalize those those struggles that we have into character issues when maybe it's not a character issue. It was just, you caught me at a really bad time on a really bad day and I made a mistake. And that leads into the last thing that I want to talk to you about, yes. Heather. That's cancel culture. Because this is something that we are talking about mm. a lot with teens and they are seeing happen before our very eyes. And I think that it is breeding a great anxiety and fear in them. They feel like they have to be on all the time. They have to be perfect all the time because it can just take one bad tweet or, you know, uh, something on the the platform formerly known as Twitter, right? Whatever we're going to call those messages now, Um, or one, you know, bad word that's recorded maybe without their knowledge or even their consent where they're going to be canceled. And we see canceled friendships, canceled shows, canceled 
everything. And you talk a lot about how this is Im- how this impacts our relationships, Heather. I would love for you to share your thoughts on cancel culture. Yeah, I it goes back to kind of what we talked about earlier where I I don't think we're doing a good job anymore as adults of modeling relationships with people who think differently than us. Um some of it might be social media uh, there's definitely like a greater sense of tribalism, I think, um, where if you aren't on my same team on everything, then, you know, our values don't align or whatever it is we say, rather than like our greatest value being each other's humanity and holding to our integrity. Um, so yeah, I just think part of the problem with cancel culture is it's, I think, something that has really grown online. But I also think we're living it in real life where if you didn't vote the same way as me or you don't see this the same way I do, you don't share my religion, then you're not a good person. We go as far as to say you're a bad person because you th- you don't agree with me. And it, I just, I don't know. I don't know if it's my background in communication or what, but I just think it's wild to go through life thinking that, I mean, I guess great for you if you were born to the right family and the right part of um, the world with all the right answers. I mean, that's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. But odds are, if you were born to a different family in a different part of the world, you would have a very different way of seeing all the same issues and ideas that you have right now. So how, I think not canceling one another is making space for just the idea to be true that people come from very different backstories. And so they see things, they have different experiences that causes them to see an issue that you firmly believe has to be this way differently. And how do we make space for other people's stories um, in our conversation? I think that's how we reject cancel culture, is making space for people to be different. And how does your faith inform this, Heather? So when people are saying, yeah, but, you know, these values mm. are contradictory to my faith. And so, you know, I, I've got it. Th- oh. That informs their decision on cancel culture. So how do we balance that? Like holding what we value as Christians and having a biblical worldview, but also keeping that space for those who don't. Yeah, I would actually say it is because of my faith that I have that worldview. Um, Ephesians 4, I think it's like 1 through 3, when Paul says to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, he says, in all humility. So what does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? It looks like living a life in all humility, gentleness, kindness. He says, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's what it looks like to be a Christian, right? (laughs) I mean, this is Jesus. (laughs) When we quote Jesus, it is Jesus who says, you love those who love you, what good is that to you? That's not that's not religion. Everybody loves those who love them. Lo- do you love those who hate you and who persecute you and want and think that you are just are you able to extend grace to those people? And I really I I would go as far as to say until we are wrestling with that 
with the idea that our relationship with God is only as strong as our relationship to one another. That is actually the covenant of the Ten Commandments. First four, our love to God. Last six, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not murder, or love each other, love each other, love each other, love each other. Man, I'm just like, Christians should be at the forefront of these conversations on rejecting cancel culture. Even if people don't share your faith, because you know as a believer that they're made in the image of God. And so how do we make space <laughs> to live out relational lives, which by the way, the Trinity, I, I'm a Trinitarian, I, God does not exist outside of relationship. Why in the world would we think that we as fallen human beings can exist outside of relationship? I mean, to me, that is the core of my faith as to why I think it's so important that we keep trying to have relationship with other people. One more thing I want to say on that topic, just if you can't tell, I'm very passionate about it. Um, in revelation when (laughs) in in revelation when john sees this vision of heaven what he sees he says is a multitude Mm. that no man could number which by the way i think is important because we tend to think that heaven is one of those things that if i'm just i'm gonna get in by the skin of my teeth i'm just barely gonna (laughs) sneak in there john says i see a multitude that no man could number of every race language, and tribe. I can promise you, if you get people of a diverse racial group, language group, and background together, they are not going to agree. I can just promise you that. But here's what John says they all agree on. They all cry out together in unison saying, this is our God. That's where we can agree that we both love God. And we may express that and think that that can be lived out in different ways, but how do we get to that picture in Revelation? Well, it's definitely not going to be in cancel culture. And I think so many of these things that we're talking about in culture, they're not—you can't flip to your concordance and find, you know, like, what is the exact answer to do? Should we cancel this company or should we not, you know? And there's so many things that are polarized— <laughs> And then we bring that into our own homes, right? Where we have this. And what I say is that parents will be afraid when their kids will express these questions or express these doubts. But I would say you cannot lecture your way to leverage behavioral change. You cannot argue your way into right relationship. And when you do have a healthy relationship between parent and kid, when you sit in those questions and you say, you know, I don't know about this. This is a good thing for us to wrestle with. What I do know is that I believe that God is good. I believe that He knows the answer, even when I don't. And when you settle on those biblical truths you do know, you can be comfortable and wrestling and talking about those things that you don't know. And those conversations are going to be much more inviting for your kids. And they're developmentally appropriate as they wrestle with these things. That is how their brain is designed to work, so that faith transfers and they adopt it intentionally as their own. Okay, you can tell we're both preaching like I am passionate about this too yeah because I think that we we have got to model this with our kids well Heather my goodness I could talk to you all day long we will definitely have to have you back the book is called I'll see you tomorrow building relational resilience when you want to quit now if you're a parent of a teen you have been there where you just think 
I just want to stop trying because it's so hard. But I'll see you tomorrow all throughout the book. The whole theme is that you find enough optimism and you find enough hope to not say goodbye, Mm. not say I'm done, not say this is the end, not say I'm finished, but say I'll see you tomorrow. And we'll keep working on that. Heather, where can our listeners find you and connect with you and learn more? Yeah. So you can just go to my website. That's the best way, heatherthompsonday.com. If you scroll to the bottom, there's a newsletter where I send out encouraging emails every single Friday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard. You can sign up for that. All my social media handles are on there and the book information, heatherthompsonday.com. Well, thanks for joining us, Heather. And I hope I'll see you tomorrow, whatever tomorrow that that day will be. Thank you, Jessica. Well, those are some very tough topics to discuss. And I know there are a lot of us who have very fiery opinions one way or the other about some of those topics. But here's what I would encourage you. First of all, let's talk a little bit about loneliness. Our teens feel more lonely than you think they do. We don't think they're lonely because they don't seem to be lonely. They have their face in their phone and they have constant digital companionship. And so it seems like they're engaged. And we believe the lie as parents that they don't want to spend time with us, that they don't want us around, that they're not interested in joining in what we're doing. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. We have to have confidence. We have to initiate. And we have to be patient and allow them to develop the trust that they need to come out in that bond. So I would encourage you to look and see how much is are your kids spending time alone? Now, a certain amount of time alone is good. Kids need that for creative play. They need that for a recharge, especially when they come home from school. But just start inviting them to be in your spaces so they're not alone. I know one of my kids will tell me, I've been alone this week. And I think, how can you be alone? I was in the house, but I wasn't physically present. And so I try to be physically present, make sure there's an open chair right by my desk anytime that they can plop in and say something or not. Sometimes we don't have to have a meaningful conversation. We don't have to play a game together or do an activity together. We can just be in the same room. So if you're working, can you work out at the kitchen table right where everybody is? Can you sit in the living room? Can you, instead of watching a show in your bedroom, watch a show in the living room and invite your kids to watch it with you? That is a really great way to be out on the lookout for loneliness. And I think that we would be remiss in not talking about the fear of cancel culture. Now, as I said to Heather, it's developmentally normal for our kids to wrestle with their values, to wrestle with their beliefs as they get older. And they start to think, okay, I've always done this because my parents have made me do it or just because my parents have done it. Do I really want this faith these values, this lifestyle to be mine? Do I want to choose that? It's a great time to step into that conversation space. And listen, I'll say it again. 
We don't want to be fear-based in our parenting. And so often we're so afraid of so many things. And number one on top of that list of fears is that our kids are going to grow up and leave home and leave their values behind and leave their family behind. That is a fear that we have. But we have to take a stance of being faith-informed, not fear-based. We are faith-based in our parenting, and I would encourage you not to be afraid to leave space for conversation. We don't want to tell our kids what to think. We want to teach them how to think. And sometimes as parents, we can look with our fully formed frontal cortex, and we can look at a situation and think, How could you even reason like that? How could you think like that? That makes no sense. Well, of course it makes no sense. They don't have brain developments yet. But do you know what happens when you enter into that conversation and you start making those connections obvious for them that seem obvious to you but don't seem obvious to them? You are teaching their brain how to think how to reason, on what values, on what information do we base our family convictions. And the important thing about cancel culture is that in talking with kids about it, sometimes your values will lead you to say, we are not going to purchase products from this company, or we are not going to consume services from this particular entity, or we're not going to listen to this particular network or read this particular book. It's not about what you do as the action, but how you arrive at that decision-making. And kids will have a very strong sense of confidence If they feel their voice has been heard, they've had input into the discussion, and you've made that decision together as a family. Now, I'm not saying that sometimes parents don't have to exercise their parental authority, and there are some things that we cannot cross a line, and you will have to put boundaries around your kids. But wherever you can, encourage that conversation. It also gives you some insight into what they're thinking. I encourage you to cultivate a spirit of curiosity. So many times our fear causes us to lead with lecturing. And as soon as they say something that we think they're going astray from our worldview just a little bit, we instantly start to barrage them with a lecture, trying to leverage behavioral change and trying to convince them, no, no, get back here. And that is coming from a place of fear. We don't want them to be harmed emotionally, mentally, spiritually, or physically. But the reality is today, living at the speed of a smartphone, they will be exposed to unfamiliar concepts. They will be exposed to values that don't align with your families. They will be exposed to those things. And equipping them to deal with confidence is a great way to go. Again, you can't lecture your way to leverage behavioral change or argue your way into right relationship. You have to listen your way there. So here's your conversation keys. I encourage you to ask your kids, how do you see cancel culture in your life? What have you seen canceled or who have you seen canceled? And what do you think about it? How would you decide whether or not 
to cancel a friendship in your life or to cancel your use of some services? How would you make those decisions? What helps you make those determinations? Try it out. Let me know how it goes, and I'll see you here next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Dr. Nurse Mama podcast, serving as your expert guide on the side to engage, equip, encourage, and empower you to navigate life's toughest issues with your teens. Tune in next week as we explore faith-based health impacts and home strategies to create a safe space in an unsafe world. Together, we'll find hope for healthy relationships. Connect with us online at drnursemama.com or on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Nurse Mama. We'll see you here next week on American Family Radio. Mm-hmm.